Well, good evening, everybody. I'm glad you guys chose to be here on this uh, Tuesday night. Um, I just wanted to mention, um, I know Joe Bo kind of alluded to it at the beginning, but if you, ha if you happen to miss our retreat that we were just on, I would strongly just encourage you guys to try to make it to the next one. It was a great weekend to just get away and be in community with one another and to be encouraged by the word together. And I just wanted to just mention this too. If you did go uh, and you happen to see Carrie, I would just encourage you to just thank him for spending the weekend with us and, and sharing with us. Part of what's cool about meeting here on Tuesday nights is the men's ministry normally is meeting right there. And I know Carrie's involved with that. So there's a good chance you might catch him coming or going. So if you were there this weekend and you happen to run into Carrie, be sure to thank him for spending the weekend with us. Well, tonight we're going to be jumping into uh, Galatians chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. And while you're turning there, I just figured since it's Valentine's Day, I would just start by just sharing a little bit of the history of Valentine's Day. I'm sure you guys are all super excited about this. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have actually looked into the history of Valentine's Day. This will be brief. I know this is like the super brief version of it. But it's pretty interesting actually reading a little bit about it. So it's named after St. Valentine. And so he was a clergyman during the time of the Roman Empire. And his primary ministry was actually ministering to persecuted Christians. That's part of why he became so well known in this, in this particular time. And so he was known for you know, showing that kind of love towards other believers. Unfortunately, he was martyred on February 14th the, in the year 269. And when I say martyred, he was beaten, and then they cut off his head. And it, was, it wasn't until the 8th century that they be, actually began to honor Valentine's Day in kind of a, an initial way. And actually, part of the reason why it became known as Valentine's Day is because there's at least one, if not two, other St. Valentines who were also martyred around that same time. One of these two also believed to have been martyred on February 14th. And so by the time we get to like the, the 14th and 15th centuries, Valentine's Day starts to shift from just being like a fun little feast to having more of a romantic focus. And then by the 18th century in England, it became even bigger and it definitely spread from there. And a little fact, Valentine, Valentine's greeting cards have been a thing for almost 200 years now which I did not know. But anyway, we celebrate Valentine's Day because we celebrate the martyrdom of two or three St. Valentines. <laughs> so just think about that next time you think about Valentine's Day, celebrating a couple of saints who lost their heads. <laughs> All right, so Valentine's Day is not why we're here. We're here because we want to jump into Galatians and to be in community together. So. Where we've been the last few weeks as we've been going through the book of Galatians is we've talked a lot about this theme of by grace alone through faith alone. You know, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul, written to a group of churches in the region of Galatia. He's calling them to the true gospel 
a gospel that is unchanging, that it is not by works at all. Now we've seen that circumcision was one of the big issues that he is addressing in this letter. There were many who were calling the, or essentially saying that the Gentiles could not be saved unless they also took part in circumcision. And that that was somehow contributing to their salvation, that apart from circumcision that they could not be saved. And so Paul's been ministering in a lot of the Gentile regions and he eventually goes to Jerusalem, where we see this, this Jerusalem council, where he and the other apostles met and kind of confirmed that circumcision does not, is not required to be saved. That's what we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And even though there had been a lot of these false teachings that came in, that it was by faith alone. That was what they agreed on. That was what they, what they confirmed in that meeting. And even though they did this, we saw last week that Peter still kind of fell into that trap of being a people pleaser. And so he was influenced a lot by a lot of these false teachers who were claiming that circumcision was important. And so last week we looked at how Paul confronted Peter with this sin. And so even though Peter knew the truth, he wasn't living in the truth. And so he had kind of fallen into that error. And so Paul had called him back, called him to repentance, and was able to kind of help preserve the true gospel, the unperverted gospel that brings freedom for those who are in Christ. Freedom that it is by faith alone and not by works. So tonight we're going to be jumping into the last several verses in chapter 2. We're going to be beginning in verse 15. And so I've titled this message, Dying to Live. And we'll kind of see where, where Paul goes after talking about this issue of the law. The law is going to be kind of a big focus, at least in the beginning part of these verses. So let's begin reading. We'll start by just reading the first two verses, verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. So this is kind of an interesting start in these first couple of verses. Paul begins here by appealing to his heritage. He points to the fact that he is a Jew. He's not a Gentile sinner like I'm sure most of us would be. He's calling back to that, that sort of privilege that he had as a Jew. And I know that word has kind of a different meaning today. But a lot of the Jews historically did feel like they were just better than the Gentiles. And I think part of what Paul is getting at here is they weren't even completely wrong. And we'll get into that a little bit. Salvation did come from the Jews. It was from the Jews that all of the nations of the world would be blessed. We see that the law and the sacraments were given first through the Jews. And ultimately, the Messiah came through the people of the Jews. God did reveal himself in a much more personal way also to the Jews, to his, his people, and not so much to the Gentiles. But were the Jews actually better 
than the Gentiles. God calls Abram before his name got changed to Abraham. We read this in Genesis 11 and 12. And Genesis 11 is actually pretty interesting if you, if you look at it. Once you get past the, the Tower of Babel, we get into this, this genealogy. I know a lot of times we think that you know, these genealogies, why are they there? They're boring, let's just move on. But this genealogy follows the line of Shem, one of the sons of Noah. And it's about eight generations from Shem till we find Abram. And so this genealogy is following the line of the firstborn. And so we know that you know, the firstborn in these historic times did have a lot of significance. Like the firstborn would get a special blessing, they would get the majority of the inheritance. So it was, you were special if you were the firstborn. There was a lot of significance in that. And so that genealogy kind of follows that line. And then we read in Genesis 12, verses one through three, God calls Abram. He says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I think this is just, just kind of interesting looking at this genealogy. And we know from other places in scripture that God is not bound by needing to pick the firstborn. So if you think, you know, eight generations, how, you know, how family trees work, like from Shem, like there's so many different people he could have chosen of all, all these people from the line of Shem. And yet here he comes and God calls Abram. It's just the one that God called of all the people he could have chosen. And it was him that he gave this promise to make of him a great nation. And just a little warning for tonight. We have a lot of scripture that I'm going to lead us through. So I don't expect you to bounce around and try to find all of these. But the next scripture I wanted to take us to is Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. And again, this is kind of speaking to who the people of Israel were and why God chose them. It says, for you are a, ho- a people holy to the Lord. This is you know, God speaking to the people of Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I love how these verses just, I feel like so clearly just say that God just chose them. There was nothing special about the people of Israel. God just chose them to be his people that, were, that would be set apart from the rest of the world, that would be called out, that he would use to be his ministers, essentially, to the rest of the world. They were his messengers. And again, the law and the prophets would go through this people, and ultimately, Jesus, the Messiah. But even in these couple of verses, we get this idea that 
They were meant to be a blessing to the rest of the world. That God's plan ultimately was not just about the people of Israel, but it was about them reaching the whole world. And now we see that you know, when we think about the new covenant, that you know, Paul is now preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, they're being added in to the family of God with no extra strings attached. There's no extra loopholes. That's part of why this whole idea of circumcision is such a big deal. There are these people who are trying to add on to what it, was, what it meant to be saved. They were trying to add on to what was required when God did not add that to the Gentiles. I think it's also just interesting to note that, you know, as, as I said earlier, that God did have a special relationship with the people of Israel. He did not reveal himself, at least in the same way, to the Gentiles. That said, it wasn't impossible for a Gentile to be saved. I believe there are several examples of this in the Old Testament. You look at people like Rahab, Ruth, Nebuchadnezzar, I believe a lot of the people in Nineveh at the time of Jonah also repented and I believe were saved. But there really wasn't a lot of that. Like generally speaking, if you were a Gentile, you were in trouble in the time of the Old Covenant. There truly was a benefit to being a Jew in that time because of that special relationship that God had with them because they were the ones who had the law, they had the prophets, they had that revelation from God. I think it's also just interesting, just noting that everyone who was saved, whether Jew or Gentile, in the Old Covenant, before Christ, that they were saved by faith. We read about this in Romans 4, that it's clearly by faith. You know, we see that the, the whole sacrificial system that you read about in you know, Exodus and Leviticus, it was there for a purpose. It was an expression of faith, but ultimately it was the faith that saved, just as, as it is faith for us today. Faith has always been the instrument that God has used to save. Ephesians 2, verses 11 and 12 also speak to this fact that the Gentiles were far off before Christ came says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. For the most part, for the Gentiles before the time of Christ, God just let them continue in their rebellion against him. A rebellion that they may not have been super aware of even, but he just let them continue in their sin and judged them for it. They were far off and alienated from a lot of the revelation of God. And yes, part of this was because of how the Jewish people did fail to bring that light to the world. How they did fail to be the messengers of God's love and God's grace and God's rule. They really didn't live up to being a blessing to the nations around them like they were meant to be. And fortunately for us, 
We are not under this old covenant anymore. And so this is part of where Paul is trying to go with what he's talking about here. In verse 16, you know, he begins verse 15, again calling back to he is a Jew. He is the one who's got that kind of privilege, being closer to God and his revelation. Then in verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So here he's kind of just explaining, ultimately they're in the same boat as the Gentiles. They're just as far from God because of their sin. He's emphasizing that even he, not a Gentile sinner, cannot be saved by the law. Paul's one who had the law. He knew it very well. He was very zealous for the Lord. And he would have been a Pharisee as well. Like he's a true student of the word. He knew it better than almost anybody in his day. He tried to live by it as best as he could, but even he could not be saved by the law because he was a sinner. He could not totally keep the law of God. James 2 verse 10 tells us, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. This is God's standard. It's essentially all or nothing. If you cannot keep all of it, you cannot be saved by it. We'll read this verse next week, but Galatians 3 verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Then later in Galatians 5 verse 3, I testify again to you, or to every man who accepts circumcision, that's again accepting those add-ons from the law, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Over and over again, we see this idea that if you failed even in the smallest thing, that you could not be saved by your own merit. You could not earn your salvation if you fail at even the slightest of sins. And this is a standard that none of us could live up to, not even the people of Israel, the people God had chosen, the people God had given his law to. We are all completely in need of the grace of God. And again, part of that grace of God was given through the sacrificial system that we see in the Old Testament, that they were able to make atonement, that blood was shed, but it wasn't their own blood. And we see that pointing to the sacrifice of Christ. They were able to put, in, put their faith into the system that God had provided with Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice for those sins. So again, by faith in Christ, by faith, faith being the, the means through which God chooses to save, not by works. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. 
This is how seriously the Jews took the word of God, the law of God. They're called to constantly be talking about it, to be putting it on their door frames and on their foreheads. Scripture was something that they were so immersed with. It was all around them. It's really interesting when you actually do a little bit of research on what it was like historically growing up in this Jewish faith. They took this memorization of Scripture very, very seriously. So much so that by the time you were six years old, you would go into a synagogue and learn the Torah. You'd learn the five books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. You'd go over it so much that by the time you were 10 years old, you would have all five of those books completely memorized. This is how seriously the Jews took the reading of Scripture, that they would have Genesis through Deuteronomy memorized by the time they were 10 years old. Now, I'm not saying we should have Genesis through Deuteronomy memorized, but if the Jews took it that seriously, why don't we? Now, granted, we have a lot more books than just those five, but I think that it just goes to show, though, that we can take Scripture that seriously, too. We should be able to internalize it a lot like what they did. So what does the law do? What is the purpose of the law that God gave his people? I'd encourage you to do some more reading on your own on this. We're going to get into it a little bit, but there's so much scripture that speaks to this that we don't have time to cover even most of that tonight. But Romans 2, Romans 7, really the entire book of Romans, if you really want to do a deep study on that. 2 Corinthians 3, these are some of the, I think, prime verses that at least speak to what we're going to be talking about next when it comes to the purpose of the law. But when we think about the law of God, I want us to think about it like an MRI. Like how many stories have you heard where somebody has gone in to get an MRI and they come out healed? Like you know if you're getting an MRI, it's because something's wrong, typically. Like you're trying to figure out what that problem is. But how often do you go and get an MRI and come out totally healed? That doesn't happen. That's not the purpose of an MRI. The purpose of an MRI is to show that you are sick. It's to hopefully help you actually find where the problem is and what needs to be done. See, an MRI can't actually bring healing. It's hopefully going to bring some life-saving knowledge as to where the problem is and what needs to be done. And I think a lot of ways this fits with the purpose of Scripture. Scripture, in a lot of ways, is to help us to see how sick we really are, how sinful we are, how far we fall short of God's standard. So God's Word and the law, they're helpful in a lot of ways, and we must value them as such. But following the letter of the law is not going to save anybody, just like going into an MRI is not going to bring healing. Hopefully pointing us in the, in the right direction, but it can't actually bring that life restoration. None of us is righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even our righteousness is like filthy rags or a polluted garment. This is how sick we really are. 
Not one of us is good enough at obeying the law. I think this is part of what Paul is wanting the Galatians to understand. Salvation cannot come from the law. But hopefully through the law, we can see how desperately in need of saving we really are. So let's now look at verses 17 through 21. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Just looking at verse 17, if, our, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? I think one of the things that kind of jumps out about this particular verse is Christ can't be both justified or in Christ, we can't be both justified and guilty. His work is complete. This is not something we can tear down or undo. And part of what Paul is looking at here is he's kind of calling back to a little bit of what he uh, confronted Peter with that we looked at last week. This idea of, you know, he tore down the law. We recognize that salvation cannot come from it. And yet there are some who try to rebuild that, try to bring back the loss as if we could be saved by it. That is not the point. We are no longer bound by that. Like the ceremonial laws, for example, of the Old Testament, those have been fulfilled completely by Christ. This is why we don't have to offer sacrifices for sin anymore. Christ's sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice, has fulfilled that. But then when we look at the law, like the, the Ten Commandments, for example, and a lot of the other moral laws of the Old Testament, those still apply. Fortunately for us, we don't have to have that perfect record. We don't have to worry about perfectly living by that law. But it is still helpful in helping us to see how we are to live as the people of God and help us to see where we fall short. But ultimately, the law cannot bring salvation. We rest in the finished work of Christ. And in that, there is security. We don't have to worry about, did we do good enough at obeying the law? It is finished in the work of Christ. So why as Christians do we sometimes go back to that lifestyle of sin? I think if we, if we find ourselves there, I think that's another way you can read verse 18, that idea of turning back to a lifestyle of sin, I think we need to be careful and examine whether or not we are truly in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. It's a good reminder for us to just be regularly introspective. If we find regular unrepentant sin in our lives that should be a red flag that should make us consider 
Are we truly saved? Have we truly put our faith in Christ? I think this is where that whole idea of dying to live comes in. We can only truly live if we have truly died. This is what it's about, being sanctified. If there isn't the sanctification happening in our lives, we should question whether or not we've truly believed. And again, just so it makes, make sure I'm not sounding like I'm contradicting myself, sanctification is not the same thing as justification. We'll get into that in just a minute, but this is not, this is a fruit of genuine faith, not, the sanctification is not proof, or it is proof of our salvation, but it's not the works, it's not works that it's saving us. The act of sanctification is not saving us, but it's a fruit of those who have been genuinely saved. God has saved us on purpose for a purpose. There's a purpose behind God's choosing to save us. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Again, by grace. Because of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, all we have to do is put our faith and trust in him, and we can be justified. I like this definition of justification from Ligonier Ministries. It says, a legal declaration in which God pardons the sinner of all his sins and accepts and accounts the sinner as righteous in his sight. God declares the sinner righteous at the very moment that the sinner puts his trust in Jesus Christ. I'll read that one more time. A legal declaration in which God pardons the sinner of all his sins and accepts and accounts the sinner as righteous in his sight. God declares the sinner righteous at the very moment that the sinner puts his trust in Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be saved. This is something that happens in an instant. It is not a process. Justification happens the moment of true faith. It's important for us to recognize this. Even just look at Catholicism, for example. Like they teach that we are saved by grace through faith, but it's not by faith alone. They add in a lot of works to that. Like you have to have works in order to be saved according to Catholicism. So I think that's part of why it's so important for us to truly know these definitions, to know what it means to be saved, that it is by grace alone, by faith alone, that works do not contribute to our salvation. Isaiah 1, verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Colossians 2, verse 14 says that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. No matter how much we have sinned, we can trust in the finished work of Christ, that all those sins no longer stand against us, that we've been declared justified 
in his sight, that we are made righteous because of the blood of Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone. John MacArthur defines, uh, or says this, only faith in Christ Jesus can bring a person the gracious gift of righteousness that provides forgiveness and salvation. Faith in Christ is not mere intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus died and rose for man's sin, but is personal trust in his death to remove and forgive one's own sins. It is total commitment to submit to him as Lord. I'll read that one more time. Only faith in Christ Jesus can bring a person the gracious gift of righteousness that provides forgiveness and salvation. Faith in Christ is not mere intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus died and rose for man's sin, but is personal trust in his death to remove and forgive one's own sins. It is total commitment to submit to him as Lord. What I love about this definition is that it's not just about knowing, it's not just about this knowledge, this intellectual understanding of the fact that Jesus died for my sins. It's more than that. It's a total commitment of, of surrender to Christ as Lord. I think this is part of what we have to understand, that faith isn't just a one-time thing. Yes, true faith is the thing that saves us. But in order for us to be sanctified, we need that faith to continue. We need that faith to even be growing in our lives as we desire holiness more, as we're seeking this master who has bought us. Our desire is to grow in our submission to him and to be sanctified. Now again, the continuation of faith is not the same thing as works. It's just proof that it was, that it was genuine. Faith is not a one-time thing that if we say a prayer that we're saved. Faith is something that is consistent in the life of a believer. And we need to remember that and be growing in that if we are to live out a life of sanctification and becoming more like Jesus. And we just think about that lordship piece as well. That it's no longer, our lives are no longer about ourselves. We're now living in surrender to him. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our identity comes from Christ. He is the new master of us in him. We must die to our old selves in order to be found in him, in that new life with him. This is what it means to be dying to live, dying to our old selves, dying to our sin, and choosing to live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is how Paul continues in this, in this chapter. I have been crucified with Christ. There's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, dying to ourselves in order to live for Christ. 
In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We were dead apart from Christ, and now we have new life in him as Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. What I love about these verses that that Paul gets into here is they just so perfectly describe the symbolism of baptism. That as we go down into the water that we are identified with Christ, that our old lives have died. We're uniting with him. I've been crucified with Christ. We're identified in his death as we go down under the water and being united with him as we come back up into new life, just as Christ rose from the dead. I just want to say this now, that if you have not been baptized, I would just encourage you to do that. And we can even make that happen here on a Tuesday night as well. I think it's an important step. You know, Jesus did command us to go and make disciples and to baptize them. We see the the call to repent and be baptized. And we know that baptism does not save. There's nothing about baptism that saves a person, but it's simply an outward expression of that inward transformation. It's a public declaration of your faith and your desire to follow Jesus the rest of your life. And even just pointing to the symbolism of baptism, I think that's why it's important that we're not doing like the sprinkling of infants, but actual full submersion. Like the symbolism is that we have been united with Christ, that it's a personal decision that we have made. You know, an infant can't make that decision for themselves. I'm not saying that it's sinful to baptize infants. I just don't believe that that's what the Bible talks about when it talks about with baptism. The symbolism is real when it comes to the submersion, and I would encourage you to be baptized if you have not. It's that outward declaration, personal declaration of your faith. As we just think about being united with Christ in his life and in his death, we recognize that the requirements of the law have been met in him. That is why we are no longer bound by it. We're not going to come to judgment day and have a checklist like how many sins have you committed. We don't have to worry about that because Christ has paid for all of it. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to God and the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. And we know that we're not there yet, right? That's this whole idea of sanctification. It is a lifelong process. Hopefully, I can just encourage you to take that, that growing in sanctification more seriously, that we'd be choosing righteousness more and more, choosing to say no to the things of this world, the sinful things, more and more, that we'd be growing in our ability to die to those things because we can find true life only in Christ. He's the one we want to live for, as he is now our new master. We've been crucified with Christ. Our old lives are no more. There should be a noticeable change in us as we're becoming more and more like Christ. So I just want to encourage us with a few last things on how I believe we can respond 
and just so we're not stressing Jobo out here. I don't think we're gonna do small groups tonight. So I just wanted to just leave us with a few pieces of encouragement and application for us to consider. The first thing, which I feel like is the thing every week, but if you have not personally made a decision to follow Christ and to put your faith in him, my encouragement is to do that. To do that tonight, put your faith in Jesus now. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, are you trying to live under the law? Are you trying to be a good person? Like, do you believe that you could be good enough for heaven? And I think the application goes beyond that. Do you think other people are good enough? And so, yeah, of course, they're going to go to heaven. Is that the standard we are living by or we assume others live by? Or are we trying to live under grace? Do we recognize the hopelessness of our situation and choose to live gratefully under grace? Because good people do not go to heaven because no one is actually good in God's eyes. We are to recognize that we have a freedom in Christ. That's not a freedom to sin however we want, but hopefully a freedom to be growing in holiness, to becoming more and more like him and enjoying him in relationship. Next question, do we rejoice in the fact that we have been justified by God and that in him we are eternally secure? This is a joy that should be growing in our lives. I think it's something that we should be regularly meditating on, regularly worshiping God for. There's a joy that nothing in this world can touch and that in Christ we are eternally secure. And another one just regularly for us to consider, are we walking according to the truth of the gospel? Are we seeking to make God known around us and to become more obedient to him by the way that we live? Do we recognize sin in our lives and have a desire to kill it? Or do we simply just want to be comfortable with it? How do we view sin in our lives? And again, I just want to leave us with this encouragement that if you have put your faith in Christ, that whenever God looks at us, he sees us in him. He sees us as blameless. He sees us in light of the righteousness of Christ and not by our works. It's not our standard. He doesn't see us on our own merit, but by the righteousness of Christ. That should give us a boldness. It should give us a joy. All we have to do is put our faith and trust in him. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the call for us, that we might die to ourselves, that we might die to the law in order to live for God, that we can walk in that freedom in Christ, becoming the people he's called us to be. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to close in a couple of songs in worship. Father, just thank you for your grace and your mercy.
Thank you, Lord, that, that you have shared your grace and your love with us, that we can be brought near to you because of what you've done for us. Lord, help us to have a growing desire to die to ourselves, that we'd find life in you worth living for, that you'd help us to detach more and more from the things of this world that get in the way. Lord, we just are grateful for what you've done for us, and just pray that you'd be with us in this week, that we'd be able to walk in the joy of you and the joy of knowing you, that we'd have a desire to share that with those around us. Lord, how great and merciful you are to us. We thank and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.